0: and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Howard Jones on the show. We'll be talking about his new book, The Bay of Pigs. It's recently appeared from Oxford University Press. The book is very timely. We Americans find ourselves embroiled in another foreign adventure. And Professor Jones does an excellent job of Explaining how we've been there before, in this instance, how three successive American administrations, the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations, really couldn't let go of the idea that Fidel Castro had to be gotten rid of by any means necessary, and I mean any means necessary. I really enjoyed my conversation with Howard today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Howard.
1: Hi, Marshall. How are you doing? Today? I'm very well. It's actually quite a
0: beautiful day here in Iowa. How is it down in Alabama? It is
1: gorgeous here, even though we're getting ready for a couple of tropical storms to whip through.
0: Yeah, that's what I hear. I should actually call, as I told you in the pre-interview, my sister and, and brother-in-law and her family and my mother and stepfather all live down in Alabama, and I was actually born there, believe it or not. Oh,
2: well, I didn't know that. Yeah, my not father
0: not. was uh, in the Army at Redstone Arsenal hmm Yeah, with Werner Where von Braun.
2: Well, like, the, no,
0: they're the still farm? they're they're now actually uh, still in Huntsville or in oh, a place okay. called Madison, I think. I don't know. I don't know it's a suburb mm. of Huntsville. I don't know very much about it to be honest with you. Um, but I thought that's kind of an interesting connection. Yes. Anyway, let me tell the listeners that today we're talking with Howard Jones on the show about his really terrific new book, The Bay of Pigs, um, and again to. Uh, Tip my hand. I thought it was a a really, it's a really terrific book and uh, it will, uh, it will amaze you. (laughs) you. I I can hardly believe my own government did these things. I really, I'm just so resistant to thinking that they did, but they did Mm -hmm. and you Mm -hmm. show it very well. But why don't we begin by um, having you tell us a little bit about yourself, that is where you were born and, you know, where you grew up and how you became interested in history and that sort
1: of thing. Right. Well, I was actually born in uh, Lebanon, Tennessee, but I don't remember much about that because my father took a job in Gary, Indiana, to work at the steel mills, and apparently I moved north to Gary (laughs) when I was about six weeks old, so Mm -hmm. very young, and we returned every summer for vacations. But uh, I went to school at Indiana University in Bloomington, Mm -hmm. got my undergraduate and graduate degrees there, Mm And my first teaching position, actually in the meantime, was in a high school
2: mm-hmm. at
1: Gary Lee Wallace.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then in the fall of 1972, I took a position at the University of Nebraska,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where I taught two years. They were each one-year positions. Mm-hmm. Then in 1974, I got the job here at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've been very happy here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's excellent. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I moved away from Alabama when I was very young as well. I think I was four at the time. and don't remember it. But I t- like I say, my, uh, all of my family has returned there after uh, a long jaunt in Kansas. So it's uh, mm-hmm. a really terrific place. Um, so h- how did you uh, become interested in American history? You study modern American, I guess we would call it political history?
1: How did you become Uh, interested in this? My first teaching position in high school was 11th grade, U.S. history, so that became my natural interest, but my interest in history actually began with, believe it or not, a football coach who taught it at uh, Edison High School, Mm -hmm. and we talked mostly football in class, as you can perhaps imagine, but uh, we got in a little bit of history, just Mm -hmm. enough to pique my interest, and... Then when I went to undergraduate school at IU, I did like many undergraduates, which is I probably had at least a half a dozen majors Mm -hmm. before I really knew what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. And then one day I had a class that began with an elderly man named R. Carlisle Mm Bewley, who had won a Pulitzer for a book on the opening of the old Midwest, Mm -hmm. and he just was an inspiration from day one. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was about him, but uh, it was just something that told me I want to do that. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so
1: I fortunately met up with a man at Indiana University for my graduate degree, actually two, Robert Farrell in Diplomatic History Mm -hmm. and uh, Maurice Baxter in Constitutional History.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And both of them had a great deal of interest in daniel webster Mm -hmm. and a lot of things relating to foreign as well as domestic policy and um, they sparked my interest in uh, going on in what turned out to be diplomatic history Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so my first book was actually my dissertation revised at the university of north carolina and it was on the webster ashburton treaty of 1842 Mm -hmm. and i Probably knew next to nothing about the topic until one day I was sitting in the office with Professor Farrell. I had just passed my exams and. uh, I said, I don't know what I want to work on for my dissertation. And he dug out his textbook Uh and began leafing through the chapters. And he said, well, no, there's a book on this. No, there's a book on Oh, there's the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. That would be, and I remember this so well, a teach of a topic. Uh And I, of course, nodded and uh, looked excited and so forth. And as soon as I left his office, I ran to... I don't know, a history book, encyclopedia or somewhere to find out what the West <laughs> was. I really didn't know. <laughs> and I had taught high school for six years, but I don't remember ever mentioning it. Yeah. Well I found out to make a long story short that it involved a boundary dispute, which mm-hmm. is not exactly exciting, but it turned out to be to me interesting. Mm-hmm. And there was a murder, and there were raids on the borders, and so forth. And, and it was a lot of fun when mm-hmm. I got into it, and that turned out to be my first book. Mm-hmm. So I then met, went from that to writing a textbook, and probably too young in my career to do that, but I tackled it.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then I turned to uh, the book that I i really had. Uh, I, I was just amazed at what I got into the amistad revolt mm-hmm. in 39 mm-hmm. and i called it mutiny on the amistad mm-hmm. and uh it was later made into a movie mm-hmm. yeah. the story was yeah. and my book was used mm-hmm. in uh, by steven spielberg in writing mm-hmm. the the screenplay mm-hmm. and so forth but that was my first book with oxford university press and mm-hmm. i remember that I circulated a prospectus, like all authors do, through several publishers, and no one was really interested. And uh, someone said, well, if you send a chapter or two. Well, I hadn't begun any kind of uh, Uh writing on it. Uh And I remember so well that I sent it to Oxford University Press, and the editors there within two weeks had a contract. They knew what the topic was. They offered me a contract. That's great. I was off. That's was a really so, uh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, obviously, that's a good experience with the press, because oftentimes experience with presses are not
1: so good. <laughs> that is true. It was it was a wonderful experience, and um, this was in the mid '80s when computers were first kind of coming into the uh-huh. among historians, and I was a dinosaur, and uh, I wasn't going to uh, get involved in that. And a friend of me happened to be in town and almost forced me down to a computer dealer. And we bought a state-of-the-art, my wife gave me approval, state-of-the-art Apple 2E yeah. dot matrix. Oh, I, oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm really no, dating myself. Yeah, I remember those, yeah. But what a revelation it yeah, was. Right. And that was the key to my career. Yeah, right. Yeah. No <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. And then
0: how did you get into um, modern uh, U.S. diplomatic history?
1: Well, the nice thing about diplomatic history is you have a whole landscape. Uh, You can start with the Revolution and go all the way to the present. And I tended to, my interests tend to shift. I will do something in the 19th century, and then after I've done that, I will sometimes shift to the 20th, Mm -hmm. and so forth. So my first book in the 20th century was a book on the Truman Doctrine. Mm -hmm. And then I did a couple of books on Lincoln and the Civil War. And then I came back. Among others, I did a book on John F. Kennedy and the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got interested in. Uh, I was going to say, if
0: you could just interrupt you for a second, so our readers sure. know that book on Kennedy got quite a lot of press, if I remember.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate. that. It did, but, uh,
0: though. I mean, it did, don't be don't be too modest. Now, it yeah. got a lot of press.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. I. I went into that. I'm not a Kennedy apologist by any means, and I think that comes out very clearly. At least I hope in the book on the Bay of Pigs. It definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what I was. Too no, in the no, not at all. <laughs> okay. But uh, I went into the Kennedy Vietnam question, uh, wondering if uh, Oliver Stone and the various others were correct about whether. He had some kind of exit strategy in mind, was he going to take us deeper into the war and so forth. And I was just amazed at how collected he was in dealing with the Vietnam War, how careful he was, and how many questions, the hard questions that a president must ask himself and his advisors before stepping into the great abyss of intervention in some foreign country. And Kennedy asked what appeared to me to be the right questions, and he concluded that uh, it was not the correct thing to go deeper into Vietnam. Uh Uh-huh. And documents that came out much longer after the fact indicated that he had set in motion through McNamara the idea of drafting a plan of withdrawal. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, really a withdrawal that mm-hmm. was really the basis for Vietnamization later, mm-hmm. although he didn't call it that at the time. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that uh, beginning in December of 63, over the course of the next year, the U.S. would ret- actually turn the clock back to where it was when he first became president,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: meant that there would be advisors there and the whole special contingent of uh, green berets and various other so-called advisors, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand of them mm-hmm. would withdraw, and we would be back to where we were. Before. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he was Mm assassinated.
0: How how was that book received? I I know the answer to this, but why don't you talk a little bit about it? Well, it
1: got a mixed response. Some uh, put me in the category of an Oliver Stone apologist, which I am not. I mean, there's just no way. I I firmly believe that you take the documents and you let the documents tell the story. And you add a few comments here and there, you make the transitions, but you really stay true. To the documents. Uh-huh. Things, that doesn't mean they're right all the time. Right. But anyway, that's where I tried to stay, and that's mm-hmm. where the story took me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's, it's interesting. I remember I was actually, what year was it published?
1: That was published in 2003.
0: Yeah. I was working at a I was working in Washington at a magazine, and oh. uh, it was discussed there. Yeah. Yeah, like? think, yeah. No. It was, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, you know, I think one thing. One thing that made the topic more difficult for you, it's a terrific topic, was in fact Oliver Stone and these people who are, uh, uh, well, let's just say they're not historians. I don't want to Mm -hmm. call them cranks, but when they say things, it tends to kind of uh, cast them in doubt. So Mm -hmm. anytime they make an assertion of any sort, immediately people begin to doubt it. And he he had said that Kennedy wanted to get us out. And so uh, I, I think that people thought, well, that's just Oliver Stone being... Sort of crazy, mm-hmm. uh, but no, I, I thought it was a brave of you to take the topic up, and certainly it's a good historical demonstration. And as I say, I think that's why it made, you yeah. know, it it made the kind of waves that it did. So I think it's an important. It's an. I, I think it's an important um, example of how historians can carefully pick a good topic and then, kind of you know, shape public discourse about something. Because as we'll say in a moment, you're absolutely right. You are no apologist for the Kennedys. That's totally well,
1: true. I yeah. that. I really yeah. do. You know, it still has um, repercussions today. I sometimes will follow blogs to see what's mm-hmm. been said about the Bay of Pigs book and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a couple I didn't, but on a blog, someone wrote in and said, "I'm not going to read this book on the Bay of Pigs. Mm-hmm. He's a JFK apologist, mm-hmm. and remember his book on Kennedy yeah. and so forth and so on." And um, I'm certainly not that.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a person who doesn't read. <laughs> that's I think that's what you're into. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's a reader. That, that's somebody who talks about
1: reading. Yeah,
0: uh, and they're different things. So let's turn directly to the Bay of Pigs. How did you have the opportunity to write this book?
1: Well, I've always been interested, which is pretty obvious, I think. Now, in the Kennedy period, in this period of the 1960s, a tumultuous time. I was in college at the time and uh, missed a lot of it because I was deeply involved in the library. Mm-hmm. You can imagine. But uh, I've always been interested in that, and of course I have this kind of almost morbid interest, as I think a lot of people do, judging by books that are at the tops of the New York Times list, The Mob, The Mafia, Mm -hmm. The Underworld, The Syndicate, and so forth Mm -hmm. and so on. And I had heard about the attempt to kill Castro. Mm -hmm. I had heard about the... CIA actually partnering with the mafia mm-hmm. to find Cuban dissidents who are willing to kill Castro, and I found that really hard to believe. Uh, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, it, it really was something, and so I decided I would investigate that. I set forth a proposal to Oxford, and yeah. writing a book on the Bay of Pigs for the Pivotal Moments in American History series. Uh-huh. In my proposal, when I look back over it. I didn't have anything about the Mafia. Uh I talked about the actual Bay of Pigs fiasco itself, and that was what got me the contract. Uh And when I got into it, the word assassination came up over and over. The Mafia's name came up over and over. Mm -hmm. And then I was fortunate in that the National Archives had just released a large number of documents from the CIA. They were in a special place in College Park, Maryland, and Mm -hmm. I got into those, and the whole thing began to just tell itself. Then I combined that with something that everyone knows about, but I'm not sure everyone has read very carefully, and that's the church committee transcripts. Right. Thousands of pages of transcripts of interviews of people such as john roselli from the mafia mm-hmm. and sam giancana from the mafia was on the ticket to be interviewed one day but he was killed the night before
2: right yeah <laughs> and wow. six
1: times around the uh, mouth indicating a signal that he talked a bit too much yeah and then john roselli testified three times in great detail, and then shortly thereafter they found him in a barrel off Florida.
0: Right. Yeah. That's, that's a remarkable story. I mean, that in and of itself. So maybe we could just set the scene a little bit. Tell us a All little right. bit about, um, let's just go through the Bay Pigs itself. Tell us a little bit about the Cuban Revolution and the American reaction to it.
1: Well, the U.S., through the Eisenhower administration, through the Cold War 50s, had virtually arrived, I think with Batista, the dictator of cuba uh-huh. and if you actually go back farther than that the mob the Sicilian mob the underworld and so forth had set itself up in cuba very closely tied with batista and then the eisenhower administration ended up using the mutual security program to funnel in all kinds of aid to batista to really hold up his regime mm-hmm and you can look at economic interests and strategic interests and political interests and all this kind of thing. But what was festering beneath the surface was a great deal of unhappiness with Batista, a lot of people who were suffering. There was a lot of people who were doing well, but a lot of people were suffering. And out of this came a young charismatic lawyer out of the University of Havana, man named Fidel Castro, mm-hmm. his brother Raul, and a, the famed guerrilla leader of Latin America, Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. And they started out with a small band of rebels and were knocked down several times. And then finally, by January 1st, 1959, he was able to amass enough of a rebel force to forced Batista out to go into exile, and he had control of Cuba.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't a communist at the time, is that no, correct? No, no, not at all. I think yeah.
1: that's as clear as as you can make it during this time. I think that's very clear. But what horrified Americans was that when he came in, he first theatrically and almost hysterically entered into several six- and seven-hour-long just <laughs> diatribes and people wondered about what kind of bladder does this man have, (laughs) that he could speak for so long and just hysterically attack the United States, which, of course, solidifies his rule at home. There's Mm -hmm. no question about that. But he talked about Guantanamo, and this just shook the rafters of the American security establishment, as one can well imagine. And he went on and on, and then he expropriated american business interests on the island Mm -hmm. a large number of companies 30 or 40 that were owned by and operated by americans were taken and cuba now had them Mm -hmm. and of course this just the eisenhower administration didn't know what to do at this point and richard nixon ended up having a three-hour interview with Castro and concluded that he was a communist in the making, mm-hmm. and the administration decided that the uh, first thing we need to do is to o- not overthrow him, to undermine his credibility. Mm-hmm. That was the first step. And so the CIA came up with some ideas like aerosol spray and the radio stations that would make speakers... Look delirious and so forth and so on, and then they were going to put some kind of salt in his boots, and then this would make his facial hair fall out, mm-hmm. and the the bearded one who mm-hmm. was a macho man would no longer have facial hair, mm-hmm. and and it went on and on, and then finally the whole plan evolved into killing him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the word killing wasn't used, assassination wasn't used, the word elimination was
2: used. Mm-hmm.
1: And that was, of course, a euphemism that is part of this whole idea of plausible deniability, that you've mm-hmm. got to have a way to uh, deny that you're actually involved. You don't lead a trail of written evidence or anything of the sort.
2: Mm-hmm. And this
1: was a strategy that had been stated at one time by Alan Dulles, the legendary director of the CIA who was already two for two in Guatemala and right. Iran, mm-hmm. and now he tells... President Eisenhower, and then he tells Kennedy when he comes in in trying to argue for the overthrow plan that this plan is even better than the ones that worked before in mm-hmm. Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And the plan was that we need to overthrow Cu- the Cuban regime, Castro regime. And what comes out of this is assassinating Castro as the spark that would ignite a massive popular insurrection, which was considered to be the key to success in overthrowing him. Mm -hmm. And so now, how do you kill him?
0: Yeah, so if I could just stop you for a moment, because this is a question I had in the book and you answer it, but just
1: uh, let me, I'd like to hear Uh, hear
0: you talk a little about it. They really fixated on this idea that there would be a relationship between um, the elimination of Castro and the fall of the Castro regime. Mm -hmm. that that one would lead to the other. Mm -hmm. Why did they do this? Why did they think that eliminating Castro would eliminate the Castro regime?
1: They, They were hoping that, first they believed that there was just a massive number of dissidents in Cuba who were just waiting for something to happen, some signal from somewhere, that would get everything rolling.
0: Was there any evidence of that at all?
1: No. <laughs> yeah, that's no. the thing I never <laughs> The CIA did not have the evidence, but it was—it had been invincible. That was, the, that was the image that people had at the time. Alan Dulles was a legend in his own time. Richard Bissell was the man put in charge of black operations in the CIA. And he had been... The person who had helped Alan Dulles develop the U-2 spy operation, the reconnaissance plane, Uh and he was called the the most brilliant man in all Washington. Mm -hmm. But he had not a lick of common sense. Yeah, apparently not. He knew economics forward and backward. He was a yale university phd and college professor of economics
2: uh-huh. but how
1: this translates into expertise and in covert operations yeah. is beyond me, yeah, me too. I, I don't understand any connection but richard bissell said over and over and he was a very cold radical tall overbearing kind of person who was Sure of himself that uh, no one could question him. And he said this will work. We are going to recruit the mafia to find Cuban dissidents and we're going to assassinate Castro as the spark to a revolution. And in fact, if we kill him, the actual invasion might not have to take place.
0: Right. So does Eisenhower sign off on this?
1: He signs off on The overall invasion plan, and we have it, I think, from several reliable sources, that he knew that assassination was part of the plan, but under plausible deniability, you never use the word in a cabinet meeting, a national security meeting, you never put it on paper, but you use euphemisms like remove and eliminate and kick out and various other things, but never the word assassination.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh I see. So uh, then this thing cooks and cooks for a while, and it gets passed off to the Kennedy administration. How does that happen?
1: When Kennedy first was nominated, and it was clear he was going to get the nomination, and then when he went on and won the election, and there was this period in between before he actually is inaugurated, there was a big briefing session in West Palm Beach, and there was Alan Dulles, and there was Richard Bissell. And they talked with Kennedy numerous times about various things, as you can well imagine. Mm-hmm. And there was one instance in which Alan Dulles and JFK went off by themselves totally, and Bissell was not part of it. Mm-hmm. And Bissell thinks that in this period, he might have told the president, the, the president elect, what was in the making. But he certainly knew about the overthrow plan of Castro but whether he knew about the actual assassination aspect, that is the real question. Bissell thinks, when I looked at some of the things he said, that he didn't tell him anything about it until he became president. But mm-hmm. he might have said something in that private conversation, but he just doesn't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the the reason why you, I think you can tie a lot of this together is, first, Alan Dulles was the director of the CIA, who is the direct liaison with the president, and I cannot in any stretch of the imagination imagine that Alan Bellis would act on his own Mm -hmm. if he is directly responsible to the president without telling the president in some way, maybe not using the word assassination, but a nod, a wink, um, a shrugging of the shoulders at Mm -hmm. the right time, uh, some kind of euphemism or whatever that this is in the making. Mm-hmm. And another thing, that two other things that tell me this, is that, as you know, just about a year or so ago, the Family Jewels mm-hmm. were published That's right. released by the CIA. Mm-hmm. And there, for the first time, publicly and explicitly, Alan Dulles admits that he approved of the assassination plan. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the other point is that McGeorge Bundy, who is the president's... National Security Advisor, within one week of the president's being in office, he is talking by phone with Richard Bissell and the CIA about establishing an actual program mm-hmm. of assassination and executive action mm-hmm. capability mm-hmm. within the CIA to take care of, to eliminate not only Castro, but no DNCM, Mm-hmm. Uh, Rafael Trujillo of the mm-hmm. Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. Patrice Lumumba of Africa, mm-hmm. and any other troublesome foreign state leaders.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the uh, assassination attempts on Castro himself. He was a very lucky man.
1: Oh, according, to, <laughs> <laughs> according to some, over the course of his time, now if you throw in everyone who was involved from the Cuban side as well as our attempts here, there were over 600 attempts to bring him down. Yeah,
0: very lucky man. Over
1: 600. Yeah. And we know that there were at least six major attempts that were concocted by the CIA in collaboration with either the Mafia or just on its own. Mm-hmm. There were two major attempts involving the CIA. Both of them were poison attempts. The CIA actually recommended gangland slaying an actual mob wipeout mm-hmm. they were going to kill not only Fidel but Raul and Jacobara as mm-hmm. well
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the various strategists said it simply can't work how can you get all three of them together and Sam Giancana who was the godfather from Chicago the godfather of the CIA along with Santo Trafficanti who was the godfather from the south mm-hmm. out of Tampa Florida and the real liaison between the cia and the mafia was john roselli
2: mm-hmm. who's a
1: sparkling personality who brought in Giancana and tropicanti and when they're meeting with the cia and the idea came of a gangland slaying, they looked at the emissary with disbelief that who is going to ever want to walk up to castro and kill him for money knowing he could never escape right And so the idea was born of uh, poison. Yeah. And so the CIA concocted some kind of pill that uh, contains some poison that if you drop it into food or into the water or into the drink or a shake or whatever it may be and Castro consumes it, that it will be a slow-acting poison and it will look like he died of natural causes. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the culprit will have escaped. Well, this then caused a a big problem. Who do you get who is close enough to Castro who can do that? Mm -hmm. And so they came up with this guy named Juan Orta who hated Castro because he had been part of those getting kickbacks from the casinos and all of that
2: Mm -hmm. kind of thing.
1: Before Castro came in, he lost his big income. But he had nevertheless appeared loyal, and he was right there as more or less a private secretary of Castro and he could drop the pills into the poison or into the water or whatever else mm-hmm. Castro might have. Well he got cold feet according to more than one person mm-hmm. and thought he had been found out and he ran away and escaped into the Mexican embassy and the poison plot failed. Mm-hmm. And that was on the eve of the invasion.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: a year later they tried again and that didn't work either.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So, let's talk a little bit about the invasion itself. Uh who were the when did the idea of actually recruiting Cubans to go invade Cuba? When was it uh created?
1: Well, the plan itself, the covert action plan, was formally approved by President Eisenhower in March, March 17th of 1960. sixty. Sixty so yeah. all before Kennedy. Yeah. All before Kennedy.
0: And had the training bases in, was it Guatemala, been set up yes. at that time? Yes.
1: The, uh, they went ahead and set them up in Guatemala, sent special forces there to train them, recruited Air National Guard pilots out of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh-huh and they were on the secret mission to train the pilots in flying B-26s and uh, various other planes, but these were the big ones, and they were going to provide ground support with bombing and strafing of the Cuban brigade as Uh they hit the beaches in Cuba. And
0: how did they recruit the Cubans uh, who were involved in the brigade?
1: (laughs) It was supposed to be a secret thing, but I think... Everybody, except perhaps me, knew about it at the time. It was was one of the most open secrets that one can imagine. The Guatemalan president was asked in press conferences. He, of course, vehemently denied this taking place in his own country. There were people who were on trains, and the trains would stop to pick up water or whatever, and they were right there in the countryside of Guatemala, and... Mm -hmm. People would get off and walk around and watch them training mm-hmm. in Guatemala and they'd mm-hmm. back and various other places as well. And the Soviets knew all about it. And the Soviets informed Castro a month or so before this happened that on April 17th there's going to be the invasion. Yeah. They knew uh, the date. They knew everything.
0: Yeah if, I recall, Kennedy,
1: uh-huh.
0: yeah. if I recall correctly, it even appeared in major American newspapers yes, that this was did. about to happen.
1: What well, Kennedy later... <laughs> when some of this came out in the newspapers, threw down the papers with disgust, and he said that Castro doesn't need any spies. All he has to do is read America's <laughs> right, newspapers. Yeah. There. yeah, so not so covert.
0: So I, 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 I guess answer me this. It's not something I was – I wasn't aware that the uh, CIA was in the business of training military forces for invading other countries. How did they get in this business?
1: They roughhouse themselves into that position. That's the only thing I can say because – At one pivotal moment in the discussion of what was to happen, first, it was to be an infiltration. It was to be a small-scale operation. There would be small guerrilla teams, half a dozen or so in each team, which Mm -hmm. would quietly infiltrate the island, Mm -hmm. and they would set up connection, a network of connections, with the Cuban dissidents, with the guerrillas in the Escambri Mountains and so forth, and then this would be the key to this massive insurrection, Well, when they got together with the first 30 or 40, someone got the idea that uh, this is not really enough. So there were recruitments in Miami and recruitments, of course, in Cuba and so forth, and the number began to grow just like Topsy.
2: Mm -hmm. It
1: just grew and grew until it grew to well over Mm 1,500, and they became known as the Cuban Brigade. Mm -hmm. Well, in the course of all of this, this small-scale guerrilla covert operation that the CIA was totally in charge of morphed into something that became an amphibious invasion yeah and this was something that even the World War II strategists had great struggles with and yet the CIA was now having this in its domain yeah and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were, involved in this to the point of there being observers. And there was one famous facial encounter between, and I would bet it was Bissell and perhaps the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who just simply told the Joint Chiefs, you butt out of this. Mm-hmm. This is our business. It's been given to us by the president. You will have no role in this. Mm. And so the military experts in something that had become a military invasion were shut out.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But uh, Kennedy's still going to them for some advice, isn't he, as the plan is presented by the CIA when he comes into office?
1: Yes, he is. Uh, Kennedy, keep in mind, was the youngest president ever elected to office.
2: Uh-huh.
1: He was enamored of the so-called experts, the yeah. CIA, which had never lost. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which had this kind of an aura around him, as you can imagine, and he tended to listen to these people. There's Mm -hmm. just no question. And the Joint Chiefs never voiced any real concern about the plan. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy took their silence as passive approval. Mm -hmm. And later on, he had a famous encounter with uh, with one of the Joint Chiefs in which he said that we had a meeting about this, and I never heard from you. And he told the president that uh, I really objected to this plan, but everyone was in favor of it, so I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy said, don't you realize that when I float a plan and no one voices any kind of criticism of it, I assume that means approval. Mm-hmm. And here they went round and round. No, we didn't mean that, but you didn't tell me. And what happened was a failure by his advisors. Richard Bissell knew the flaws in the plan. There's no question about it, mm-hmm. but he didn't tell the president about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He mm-hmm. led them. He led the president to believe that when the invasion plan was changed from Trinidad to the Bay of Pigs, mm-hmm. this placed the Bay of Pigs 80 miles from the Escambri Mountains.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in between the Escambri Mountains and the beaches themselves was a million Square miles
2: mm-hmm.
1: of swamp, a lot of swamp, full of every creature one yeah. can ever imagine. Yeah. and he had the he led the president to believe that there was not that distance that it was safe and that they could easily escape in the mountains if things didn't go well on the
0: mission. Mm-hmm. Is this the is this the era in which the notion of plausible deniability, which is a strange locution if you think about it, is this the era in which it becomes kind of a a a, a known entity or a cliche in government circles?
1: I think so. I think this probably more than anything advertised what the strategy of the CIA was. Uh, Alan Dulles had stated this publicly at one time, or at least he was on record as having stated the way that it was supposed to work. And I think probably the Bay of Pigs, more than anything else, just advertised plausible deniability. I think that more than anything else, what forced Kennedy to make two absolutely critical decisions that I think more than anything else brought the plan down. One was that he stopped the air cover for the actual invasion. He called it off because he was afraid that this would expose the American hand,
2: yeah
0: well, he moved the loca- he moved the location of the yeah. invasion itself in yeah. order to do this, and I, I I guess that's something that I found. I teach a class in military history, and oh yeah, you know it really wouldn't matter whether you invaded into you know sort of Normandy or brest. I mean the Germans would have known you're coming mm-hmm. <laughs> so switching from you know switching from uh, Trinidad to uh where was it uh uh, Zapata,
2: Zipata. Yeah,
0: I'm, really isn't uh, going to add to deniability at all. I, you know, invasion forces are invasion forces.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> they, you can't
0: hide them. <laughs>
1: absolutely. And, and when you consider that you're talking about a 1,500-man brigade, yeah. and you're talking about planes, and you're talking about every kind of motor vehicle you can imagine on a half a dozen or so major ships and yeah. small craft and so on, and... Kennedy expected this to be a quiet landing,
0: yeah, I can't yeah, that part is is totally bizarre I, I really think that they just had lost touch with reality at that oh, point, you're right that they had just become disconnected or disassociated from from mm-hmm. reality, and this is the more remarkable because you know Kennedy had been at war himself. He had seen how this huge yes. machine mm-hmm. of the army and navy and such how it works, and mm-hmm. it it does not work quietly.
1: <laughs> it cannot no, we'll work withdraw. quietly. No, it does the not. The plan was they were going to come in at night.
0: Yeah, and that's and remarkable, then when daylight
1: too. came, yeah. withdraw.
0: Yeah, and, and that's do it again. I was going to say for those of our listeners who don't, you know, f- sort of follow, you know, uh, amphibious assaults, they're never done at night. No, because it's just logistically too. It's even the military won't do it at night. They wouldn't do it in World War Two. Yeah, I mean, which is the obvious time to do it at night, but Mm -hmm. they wouldn't do it. They're like, no, you know, it could be an absolute disaster. But here they 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 get these guys. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible in that way. So tell us a little bit about how uh, the the project was finally approved and then went forward.
1: It was of course approved by the president, which put kind of a magical kind of uh, aura on it because as you know Dwight D Eisenhower was a highly revered man he was a military man mm-hmm. associated with Normandy and all of this so how could he possibly be wrong that was the that was the whole thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then when Kennedy came in he had and to his credit he had serious doubts about it there's no question but he was more or less bowled over by the experts and of course you know the story that afterward he swore he was going to tear the CIA apart mm-hmm. and just blow it to the winds, just splinter it. Mm-hmm. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said at one point, with all their fruit salad pins right. in front of their shirts yeah. and all this kind of thing, he had had it with these people uh-huh. uh, just because they were the military experts. Uh-huh. He had stormed uh, about Curtis LeMay one time after he had an argument with him that w- where do we get these people? We th- These kind of people don't belong in civilized countries
2: and mm-hmm. so forth. Yeah.
1: And he he just went, uh, he almost had an epileptic fit one time after talking with LeMay. Uh But in the first period before all of this, he was enamored of these people. And I think there was something, you almost have the sense that Kennedy had, and I think Arthur Schlesinger bears this out as well, that he had almost a Midas touch, that whatever he touched worked. Yeah. And there was always the belief, even Eisenhower said this, that there was always American ingenuity and just good old luck. Uh-huh. And that when it really comes down to it, it'll work. And I think that the CIA and the dissidents in Cuba and whatever, and the Joint Chiefs as well, honestly felt that when it got down to the crunch time and if things were not really going well in the invasion, that Kennedy would not see us lose and that he would call in the military force. Right. And he didn't.
0: Right. So they proceed with the invasion and uh tell us a little bit about uh the, the night in which they embark or disembarked.
1: The uh first night, April seventeenth, the um first thing that was done was that there were small frogman teams, half a dozen or so
2: mm-hmm.
1: who would hit the beaches and would quietly set up marker lights that were seen only from the water, not seen from the beaches themselves. Mm-hmm. And they picked some secluded spots, and this would indicate the right channels to land and all of that kind of thing. Well, one of the first things Kennedy said when he approved the plan is no Americans to be involved.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the leader of each frogman team was American. Mm-hmm. So the first fired on the beaches. First firing involved Americans. Mm-hmm. And Bissell had promised Kennedy that that would not happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they were discovered right at the very beginning. There were some firings, exchanges of fire with militiamen and a few others. And then to add almost a farcical kind of thing to this whole affair is that some of those who discovered them were workers building motel-like structures in a beach resort. hmm along the beaches, and they were up late that night partying on the beaches, but <laughs> so there were lights everywhere, and mm-hmm. noise, and singing, and everything, people drinking, and all of this, and here come the frogmen sneaking into mm-hmm. the beaches. And then, of course, firing of shots. Mm-hmm. Well, they were discovered, and the next thing is that the ships began coming in, and they were put on high speed to unload as quickly as possible. And
0: these are landing craft, correct? World oh, War yes. They're landing, landing craft, craft
1: yeah. and they're dumping everything you can imagine. And when daylight comes, they are not near done, as you can well guess. Yeah. And they're still there. They have not withdrawn like they were supposed to do. And uh, the planes then began to arrive, one plane from Cuba's Air Force, another plane, and they began strafing and they began bombing. And, of course, there was firing back at them, but no planes whatsoever from the Cuban side, from the rebel side, uh-huh. because Kennedy had called all of that off.
0: Right, and, and almost immediately before the invasion he called it off. He, because, yes, he did. Because the people on the beach understood that these planes were going to come. Absolutely, and they didn't realize that Kennedy had canceled them. Yeah. Ooh,
1: last second thing.
0: Yeah, and that's another thing. I think that it's surprising Kennedy wouldn't know, having been in the Pacific theater, that you don't invade places mm-hmm. without air cover. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, that they made certain of that at Normandy and everywhere else that they mm-hmm. they totally dominated the skies. That there were no in this Four case yeah. yes yeah. they were very vulnerable. So then what happens?
1: The, there were, We brought down a couple of the planes. I say we, the Americans uh-huh. working with yeah. the Cuban Brigade, brought down a couple of the planes, but they were not able to disable Castro's Air Force. He had, we estimate, 18 or so planes, about a half a dozen uh, Sea Furies and a half a dozen B-27s, but what he did have were jet trainers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the experts had said these are of no count because they are training planes. Mm-hmm. They may be fast, but they can do no damage. Mm-hmm. Well, before the actual invasion took place, Cuba, either with the Russian technicians' help or the Cuban technicians on their own, armed the jet trainers with machine guns. Mm-hmm. And when they came in with lightning like speed, mm-hmm. they were untouchable. Mm-hmm. They just ran through the area. They sank one of the big ships that the Cuban Brigade had, and this was in shark-infested waters, mm-hmm. which was another problem with this area.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And a couple of other things happened where the men, some of these, were able to get out of the ships and run for shore if they weren't hit by the sharks. Mm-hmm. And this was one is one of the worst places in terms of coral reefs. Mm-hmm. They're like razor-sharp mm-hmm. reefs. And the CIA was not aware of this or yeah. certainly did not tell the people, and these things just ripped the men, it ripped the small craft, mm-hmm. and they were vulnerable with the guns from the planes flying overhead, and it was just, it was an absolute disaster.
0: Mm-hmm. And how does the, uh, you know, of course the press gets hold of this pretty fast, and yeah. it appears in the papers, what, how does the Kennedy administration react?
1: what well kennedy afterward you mean after the whole thing was over no i
0: mean like right you know like the first day of the invasion or second day of the invasion when the headlines first
1: well, the appear. First thing, by the, by the evening of the first day there's already talk about evacuation yeah and this is just a total shock because the communications between what's happening there we hadn't no one the administration had no one there who could give a direct line of communication back to Washington. Uh So everything was arriving hours after the fact, when it was too late to do anything. Uh And they began talking about evacuation. And to give you an idea of this, the Joint Chiefs Chair, Lemnitzer, said, well, there's no problem because all they have to do is escape into the mountains. They can just, just, just walk across the beaches and they're out of it. And as it turned out, he was not even aware of the mountains. Being so far away, that yeah. there was no way to escape. And when they got back off the beaches, it was, as I say, they were at the mercy of either the swamp or to try to get out in the waters, and they're at the mercy of the sharks. Mm-hmm. And the Kennedy administration was not really aware of it at the beginning. hmm
0: And so, what did, did they? So, were there, was there an actual plan to um, to to take them off the beach then?
1: Oh, yes destroyers were sent in, and he kept them out of the territorial uh, waters. Of course, at night when they tried to get in close, there were guns that from the tanks that Castro had amassed along the beach. Uh-huh. And they had to stay out of the firing range, and they really could do that. And people pleaded with the president called him out of a big ball, as it turned out. Uh
2: We've
1: got to do something about this. We have planes in the area. We have jets there just off the Cuban waters. We can send them in, give them air cover, and all of this kind of thing. And Kennedy absolutely refused to do it.
0: Uh And why did he refuse?
1: I think we get back to plausible deniability. He was afraid that it would show the American hand and we'll get involved, and the admiral. Armed at him, he said, we are involved, Mr. President. He used a few experts in saying uh-huh. that, and that still did not get him.
0: Uh-huh, I see. So uh, did – was the feeling then among the Joint Chiefs and, uh, I guess, Bissell and the rest that we were abandoning the Cubans there?
1: I think so, and I, I, I'm reading between the lines, but you almost get the feeling that By God, they didn't want to come to us. They didn't want us to help them and so forth. So we wash our hands of this. Uh And I think they really did believe that when it got down to the final moment, the president, in frustration, desperation, exasperation, whatever, would turn to them, and then they would bring in the military might. Uh And it just didn't happen
0: yeah so in a sense they never really believe i mean th- again this is reading between the lines and probably saying mm-hmm. too much that th- they didn't really have great confidence that the pr- that the invasion itself was going to work they knew that it would serve as a pretext for american intervention itself
1: i think one can read that interpretation in now. a lot of people would vastly disagree with that they will point out that the joint chief said at the time that it had about a 50 50 chance or even less than that of working but they still gave their silent approval.
0: That's just remarkable that they would say that because you know anybody who studied military doctrine knows that you don't go into engagements with a 50-50 chance of winning. No, you just don't I ever do that. that. Yeah, I mean you first of all you have to have three times as many forces as the other side and you know mm-hmm. so much air superiority before you mm-hmm. do anything and you know that they would approve something that you know and that Kennedy would sign off on it. I, you know it just really is it's just quite a, a remarkable thing so then after the thing was said and done and uh the uh invasion forces they were captured correct Yes. for the most part yeah Mm -hmm. and then what happened to them
1: about 1200 of them were captured and a hundred or so plus were killed and um there were of course some there were some heavy casualties on the cuban side no question but he captured the 1200 and What he did is he made it into a public spectacle, Mm -hmm.
2: Castro did. Mm -hmm.
1: Castro had them put into the big gymnasium, a big big auditorium Mm -hmm. there in Havana, had Mm -hmm. them cleaned up, put there, and so forth, sitting in a group as if they're watching a basketball game Mm
2: -hmm. or whatever.
1: And he berated them Mm
2: -hmm. over,
1: it went on for hours Mm -hmm. and hours. Mm -hmm. And they stood trial, and they were going to be convicted and all this kind of thing. But they were kept in prison until a deal was finally worked out about a year or so later in which they were released by a ransom, if you want to call it that, uh, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical supplies and so forth, millions of dollars worth and so on were given to him, and they were released.
0: So we got all uh, 1,200 of them out
1: then? We got, we got them out, and uh, the few Americans who were there, uh, we had four Americans who actually died in the Bay of Pigs mm-hmm. invasion itself, And there's, uh, I don't know if you know this story, but I found out some details after I had written the book. And I talked to a young woman. Well, I say young. She's in her 50s. That's a young woman.
2: Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is.
1: And uh, her father was one of the pilots who was shot down during the course of the Bay of Pigs invasion. And it was all kept very hush-hush because, of course, no Americans were involved in it officially. Right. And Robert Kennedy was deeply involved in keeping all of this quiet. And he was kept all these years until the 1970s in a freezer, the body was. Holy cow. And the, the daughter, this woman I talked with, had a lawsuit against Cuba that fell under the terrorism acts and so forth, passed recently. And she su- sued him for everything that happened. Got the body back in uh-huh. the 70s and had him properly buried in Alabama. Uh-huh. And then carried on this lawsuit. And in the last, within the last year or so, won 20 plus million dollar Really? Losses. Yes.
2: Is that right? And,
1: uh, just a tremendous suit. I talked to her on the phone for a long time. A couple times she called me about the book. Uh huh. So there were four Americans killed, in, and a couple of them, it's very obvious, including this her father, were executed point blank yeah. after being shot down.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So one of the most remarkable things I found in the book was even after this fiasco, and Kennedy, much to his credit, takes responsibility for it, yes. uh, they do not let go of the idea of overthrowing Castro at all.
1: This has been, the traditional story is that, Boy, did he learn from that. Uh, so he, he, uh, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis drove home the point. So when you look at what actually happened right after this was over, Kennedy called in Maxwell Taylor and had him investigate what went wrong and basically what we can do to correct this. Yeah. And out of this comes not the idea of leaving Castro alone, but doing it better the next time. hmm No frowning on assassination, no frowning on any way whatsoever to undermine him. Mm -hmm. And the Kennedy administration sets up a very hush-hush organization that is known as Operation Mongoose. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been many people who have argued what the purpose of it is, and uh, some would say it was not assassination. Well, the purpose of it was clearly to eliminate Castro. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't believe they would have ever drawn the line at assassination. It was a blanket mandate to Mm -hmm. get rid of Castro. And the person who was put in charge of it was the liaison with John F. Kennedy, none Mm -hmm. other than Robert Kennedy.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And the man who was the titular head of the whole thing was Edward Lansdale, who Mm -hmm. already had great fame as OSS and CIA Mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: he said that there was never any statement made drawing a line or putting restraints on how you bring it about
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so it's pretty obvious that elimination of castro meant any way that was necessary to get rid of him
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then along came the cuban missile crisis mm-hmm. and that uh ended the operation mongoose program mm-hmm. and
2: the traditional
1: program or the traditional interpretation is that this just scared the bejeebers out of the administration and so they got rid of operation mongoose well the documents indicate very strongly But they got rid of Operation Mongoose simply because it didn't work. And so the best thing now is to think of a more forthright way. And this is when Kennedy becomes first absolutely infuriated with Castro. The Kennedys, not just JFK. Mm -hmm. Infuriated with Castro for welcoming the missiles, the missile sites. And they become... Even more determined, in the course of the 13-day crisis over the Cuban missiles, in the course of this, they are also talking about getting rid of Castro.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's...
1: So in the middle of this, they become, I think, obsessed with getting rid of Castro. Castro had some kind of knack of getting under the skin of the of the White House. Yeah. In particular, the Kennedys. They're, they're both young, they're handsome, they're, uh, they have a lot of similarities, and yet they are repelled by each other. Yeah. It just seems like there's. it's almost as if it's written in the stars that these two were going to go at each other.
2: Yeah, it's
0: funny because I, I, you know, I don't know a lot about Robert Kennedy's biography, but he strikes me as a man who held grudges, Oh, really deep grudges. He never forgot a slight, mm-hmm. and when he got this in his teeth, he was not going to let go of it. That's right. And then the remarkable thing, of course, is that Kennedy gets assassinated. Yes. And I was there are some amazing quotes in your book about how sort of top-ranking political leaders, including Johnson, immediately associate yes. Kennedy's assassination with the attempts on Castro's lives. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that.
1: The the, the first thing that I, I thought was really striking, of course, with the Bay of Pigs, the missile crisis, there is no laying down of the attempt to kill
2: Castro. There's no
1: laying down of a military invasion. Another plan is made to bring about a full-scale military invasion near Havana, near the Bay of Pigs, all of this kind of thing. And we would be leading the charge. Americans would be deeply involved in it. It would start off with another group of Cuban rebels, but we would be right there, ready to move as quickly as possible. And in the meantime, while all of this is going on, the CIA has made contact with a Cuban dissident who is in the top military circles of the Castro regime, a man named Rolando Cabella,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who quickly picks up the CIA codename of Amlash. Mm-hmm. And he has become disenchanted with Castro because the revolution has gone off into a socialist direction, yeah. a communist direction, and so forth. And the man is really tipping on the edge, Mm -hmm. I think, of uh, not really being balanced, to put it Mm -hmm. mildly. He's a really risky character to deal with, but he had an inside shot at Castro. I don't mean that literally. I mean he had an inside relationship with him. He knew him very well, and he could perhaps lead a coup. And so the Mm -hmm. CIA begins talking with him. And it's almost as if something out of a James Bond novel, because Mm -hmm. they are meeting in Paris, they're meeting in Stockholm, they're meeting in uh, uh, Latin America, various places and so forth, and they are actually meeting with him on the day Kennedy is assassinated in Paris.
2: And Uh they're
1: ready to deliver a... Killing device to him, which he turns down, but they approve all kinds of military aid to him if he begins a coup.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's it's quite remarkable. And then you have you have a quote in there, in which Johnson, after being told, apparently he didn't know much about these things, after being told that there was, uh, you know, a series of attempts on Castro's life by the Kennedy administration, he he concludes almost immediately that I, I think the quote is something like. You know, Kennedy tried to get Castro, but Castro got him first. Yes. And
1: just... <laughs> he, he firmly believed that yeah. and had uh, a full-scale investigation and inquiry into the CIA itself. In other words, the CIA was investigating itself, but it came out with a pretty revealing report that is, uh, I've used extensively in uh, writing yeah. the book. You Remarkable. have to be careful about certain things, no question.
2: Yeah. But
1: uh, Johnson... First stated publicly in the 1970s in a magazine article it came out that, uh, my gosh, we had a murder incorporated in the White House. I right. assume he was talking about the executive action yeah. capability. And that, that was
0: in the Atlantic That's Monthly. It. I have to give yes. them a, a plug because I used to work there.
2: So oh, well, yeah. good. Yeah. Good.
1: Well, they came yeah. out with that. Uh-huh. And then uh, these documents show, and uh, Califano's memoirs show this, that he said this in front of him and Amazing. so forth, that... Uh, Castro got him first. Kennedy Amazing. tried to get him, but Castro got him. First.
0: Absolutely astounding! I, I, when I read that, I almost dropped the book. I mm-hmm. could hardly believe it. It's tr- it's well, really, me
1: too. When I was going through the doctor, but it's true. So
0: anyway, you know, we've taken up so much of your time, uh, and we oh, really I... appreciate it, Howard. It's it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And well, again,
1: thank you. for
0: readers. The, the The name of the book is The Bay of Pigs. I very much encourage you to go and purchase it and read it because it's terrific. Uh, let me ask you our traditional closing questions on this book in history, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: I have two projects in mind. I'm finishing up a book on um, the, here we are going into another century. I'm finishing up a book for North Carolina in a series on the Civil War, and I'm mm-hmm. dealing with Union and Confederate foreign relations during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And when I finish that, I'm going to go back with Oxford, and uh, they've invited me to do another book for the Pivotal Moments
2: series.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's on Mili.
0: Oh, really? On my Lai.
1: So I'm going to be dealing with that.
0: No, that's you know, it's it's so interesting. You mentioned that because I was. It's Milai is one of the ways I got into history myself. My uh, really, my uncle was uh, uh, a fighter pilot in Vietnam, uh yeah, and I, so I read a lot about Vietnam when I was growing up in the 60s and I was very young, But uh, and then the My Lai Massacre occurred and I saw it in the papers and I, did, I wrote a little research project about it when I was, really? I, I must have been like 13 or something like that, 13 uh-huh. or 14. And it's funny because I'm interviewing in just a few weeks a fellow named James Wilbanks who wrote a book called Abandoning Vietnam and, and he served in Vietnam, and uh, and so I'm really looking forward to that interview myself. So you have to promise me when your book comes out that we can arrange an oh. interview about it.
1: You have my promise.
0: Absolutely, because I really would want to talk to you about that. Absolutely. Well, well, thank well Howard, thank you very much for being on this show. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Marshall. Okay. It's been my pleasure, my delight. All right, take care. Thank you. You've
0: been listening to an interview with Howard Jones, author of The Bay of Pigs. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope that you have a good week.